Amen. Well, hey, good morning. Uh, it's good to be with you. If you're new here, my name is Ryan. I serve here as one of the pastors. And just want to let you know we're really glad that you're here and uh, that you chose to be with us uh, this morning. Uh, if you're new, we're wrapping up a series this morning in the book of 1 Corinthians. And so if you've got your Bible, uh, make your way to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And while you're doing that, I'll tell you where we're going after this. So next week, we're going to have a standalone sermon on rest. And then in the month of May, we're going to be in a series on the attributes of God, talking about who God is uh, and what God is like. And then uh, throughout the summer months of June and July, we're going to be in the Minor Prophets, looking at the books of Micah uh, and Haggai. But we've been in 1 Corinthians since last August, and, and I pray that this has been a really formative series for you. I think it has been a really formative series for our life together as uh, a church. I pray that uh, as we've walked through this book, you've seen, uh, you've just been refreshed again in the gospel, and you've seen how the gospel speaks to every single area of our lives, and you've been encouraged to step in and serve the church with the, with the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given you. And that's, that's really the same sort of themes that Paul is going to hit on today as he ends this letter, the same notes he wants uh, to remind us with and, and leave us with as we walk through this. So let's see this together now. 1 Corinthians 16, we're going to look at the entire chapter, starting in verse 1. The Word of God for us today as it speaks to us like this. It says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I'll stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I'll stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he's doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they've made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray one more time for God's help. 
Uh, Father, as we come to your word now, would you give us ears to hear it? Would you open up our hearts to receive your word? When you speak, would we listen? God, where, where there are idols, would you uncover them this morning? Where there are those who are paralyzed by um, what decision to make and where to go next, would you free them from that? Where there are those who have, uh, up to this point, treated church like a consumer product and, and have not stepped in and have begun to serve with their gifts, God, would today be the day that you, you, you move in their heart, that they might step in and serve your church. God, work in our hearts and our lives now through the preaching of your word. I pray that you would in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, after uh, 58 verses in chapter 15 describing the glories of the resurrection and all that brings to us as Christians, I, I'm sure as we read through chapter 16, uh, it might have felt a little anticlimactic to you. Uh, but this is actually an incredibly practical chapter for us because we stand in the same position that the Corinthians did. You see, Jesus has come once. He has lived in our place. He's died for our sins and He's risen from the dead, giving us the promise of our own future bodily resurrection. Uh, but that's not here yet. We're still waiting on that. And so, while we wait for Jesus to return and complete the work of salvation, uh, what are we called to do in the meantime? Well, that's what 1 Corinthians 16 answers for us. We're called to live in light of God's grace. To live in light of of Jesus' resurrection. And three ways that that specifically plays out that Paul gives us here. He says that we are to practice giving that's fueled by grace, living that's fueled by grace, and serving that's fueled by grace. And so let's talk first about giving that is fueled by grace. And I'll let you know up front, we're going to spend a good chunk of our time here. Uh, so buckle up. Uh, we're going to have some fun. Uh, in verse 1, he mentions this collection for the saints in Jerusalem, and uh, we know what this is from other letters. He talks about this in other letters, and we see it in the book of Acts. What had happened was there was a famine in Jerusalem, and so the church in Jerusalem was uh, running out of resources, was going to go hungry, and so Paul enlisted help from all of the Gentile churches that he had planted to send money and resources over to the Jerusalem church. And so Paul's seeking to meet a specific need here, but, but even still, he gives us some really great principles for giving in general. Uh, notice what they are in verse 2. First, he says, every Sunday, every first day of the week, when you gather together as a church, each of you is to set something aside during the week so that you can bring it to church on Sunday and it can be stored up together so that when Paul comes... Uh, he doesn't have to do that kind of awkward shakedown of like, really? You guys aren't going to give anything to help the Jerusalem church? Really? No, I'll wait. Really, I, I can wait. But, but notice a few things uh, about what Paul says here. We, we've already seen in chapter 11 at the Lord's Supper that the rich people in the church were dividing themselves from the poor people in the church. And so uh, if you're just trying to get money to meet this need for the saints in Jerusalem, who would you ask to give? The rich people, right? Because if the poor people give, it's probably not going to move the needle that much to help you reach the amount of money that you need to get for the church in Jerusalem. But who does Paul say should give here? He says each of you. Everyone is to give. He calls everyone in the church to give. And he says everyone in the church is to give as he or she may prosper. 
The New Testament does not teach a tithe. It does not teach a percentage of our income that we're called to give. Instead, the New Testament teaches that our giving should be generous and sacrificial. Generous and sacrificial means that you give in a way that goes beyond what might be comfortable for you, in a way that you miss that money when it's gone, in a way that you could think of a lot of other things that money could have gone towards and helped, in a way that hurts a little bit for you to give that much. Generous means you go above and beyond what's expected of you and what might be comfortable for you. Sacrificial means it should actually be a sacrifice. Like, you should have to think, there are some things we're going to go without. There are some spending habits we're going to change. There are some things we're going to give up to be able to give this amount, and it's going to hurt a little bit to give in this way that's sacrificial. The New Testament teaches generous and sacrificial giving because it teaches us that we should give in light of the gospel, that our giving should be fueled by God's grace. Paul expands on his teaching here in the book of 2 Corinthians in chapters 8 and 9, and listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. And so we give generously and sacrificially because that's how God has been towards us. Jesus became poor and took on our humanity so that through His poverty, we might become rich. And so now in response to that, we give generously and sacrificially because Jesus has been generous to us and we want to follow Him. Listen, the reality is that I can't guilt trip you well enough to motivate you to give in a way that's going to make you continue to give consistently. If you're guilt-tripped or you're motivated by some need you see in the moment, after a while that motivation is going to fade. But seeing the grace of Jesus in the gospel and getting that into your heart will make you a generous giver. Because how could you really grasp how generous Jesus has been towards you when you absolutely did not deserve it, and that not move you to want to be generous and sacrificial towards others? And so everyone is to give, and everyone's to give generously and sacrificially, which means that that's going to look like different amounts for different people. Uh, Again, if it was just a percentage that we could kind of check off the box and move on from, say 10% of your income that you were called to give, then for some people who have really financially prospered, that really wouldn't be generous and sacrificial, while for other people who, man, for whatever reason are in financial trouble, maybe they have a lot of credit card debt, student loan debt, whatever it might be, to to give 10% would just put them even further into debt and even further behind, but generous and sacrificial hits both of those people. If because of your financial situation, from credit card debt, student loan debt, whatever it might be, if if 2% of your income right now is generous and sacrificial for you, then then give 2% of your income and don't let anybody judge you for that. You're being faithful and obedient to Jesus. It would be wise for you to put a plan in place as to how to get pay off uh, some of those debts that you have so that it might free you up more in the future to be more generous, but it wouldn't be wise for you right now to up your giving to 15% of your income and put yourself further behind the eight ball and further into debt. On the other hand, for, for some of us, 10% really isn't generous and sacrificial at all, and if that hits you, Man, then you need to sit down with your spouse or you need to sit down and have a real, uh, think through how you can get your giving to the level where it's generous and sacrificial. I'll encourage you with this. 
The reason our giving is so important is not primarily because it keeps the church financially running, even though it does, but because money is one of the easiest things to make into an idol in our lives. It's one of the easiest things to look to as our God and to invest it and look to it for our safety and security and stability and trust in it in a way that we're only supposed to trust in God for that. And giving generously and sacrificially helps loosen the grip that money can so often have on our heart. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about money and He says, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. So don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth. Lay up for yourself treasures in heaven for wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He did not say wherever your heart is, there your treasure will be also. He said wherever your treasure is, you can expect to find your heart there too which means that your heart is going to follow where you put your treasure. Put more simply, your heart is going to follow wherever you put your money. Say, for example, you get a nice raise and you use that raise to buy a new house. Well, now all of a sudden, the furniture that you had in the old house, it just looks weird in the new house. It doesn't fit in the new house, and so you're not going to be able to use that. And I mean, you can't have a house with no furniture, so you've got to go out and buy new, better, bigger, expensive furniture. And man, the TV that you had in the old house, it's too small. It looks weird in this bigger living room. And if you keep this small TV in this bigger living room, when people come over to your house, they're going to judge you. They're going to laugh at you. When they leave, they're going to talk about you and how weird your small TV looks. So you've got to go and get a bigger TV. And man, the kids need nicer stuff for their bedrooms too, because it would be selfish to just focus on us and not help out with the kids. And I mean, they're going to have nicer bedrooms, so they need nicer stuff for their bedrooms. And If I keep this beater car in the driveway of this nice new house, that's going to look out of place too, so maybe we need to think about getting a new car. And you look up, and before you know it, after three to six months, like, what have you done? You've spent every waking moment shopping and planning and daydreaming about how you can get nicer, better, bigger, more expensive stuff, and and potentially chasing an idol the entire time you did that, because your heart's going to follow your money. You are going to be devoted to, you're going to daydream about, you're going to plan for, you're going to make sacrifices around where you put your money. And so I'll just put it real simply. Do you want money to become an idol for you? Do you want it to be what you look to as God? Do you want to trust in it to give you the stability and security and safety that only God can give you? Do you want to constantly be restless because you're always wanting more of it, looking for more of it? Well, then just don't give. Or give just enough to quiet down the voice of the Holy Spirit uh, telling you that that money is actually your real God in your life. Now look, I I know that's harsh, but I'm, I'm really trying to help you here. Like, we're not a business. I don't get a performance bonus if we hit our quarterly quotas. I'm trying to keep you from going to hell worshiping another God. Because listen, Jesus saved some of His strongest warnings for those who trust in their riches. He constantly warns about the dangers of riches, but everybody thinks that those warnings are for somebody else, that Jesus couldn't really be talking to us, that we're the exception, that we will be the good, rich people, that if we get a bunch of money, we'll use all that money on the kingdom instead of nicer, better stuff for ourselves and our families and padding our bank accounts. But don't kid yourself. If you are not trusting in God with your money now, if you're not being generous and sacrificial with it now, 
what makes you think if you come into a windfall and get an influx of money that you're magically going to trust God with that? You're magically going to want to give that away. No, you'll find every excuse in the book as to why it's actually not a good time to start giving, why it's not a good time uh, to trust God with this money, why you actually need this money all for yourself. If you don't want to have your heart controlled by your money, start giving in a way that's generous and sacrificial now so that if you do get a raise, if you do come into an influx of money, you've already put the building blocks in place to be generous and sacrificial and to ensure that that influx of money does not become a stumbling block for you. Because Jesus is just constantly warning about this. In Ephesians 4, Paul is talking about the new life that we have in Jesus and how we live out the new life that we have in Jesus. And listen to what he says in verse 28 of Ephesians 4. He says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So notice the transformation the gospel brings. It's not just that we want to be able to labor with our own hands so that we don't have to steal. It's that we labor so that we might have something to share with anyone who's in need. This is why Paul says everybody is to give. Each is to give because giving is an issue of discipleship. It's an issue of following Jesus, of making sure that Jesus has your heart and your money does not, and an issue of making sure that everyone in the church's needs are met. There's another principle we see in the text here about giving. Paul says that we should set something aside, put something aside so that we can bring it on Sundays and store it all up together, which means that giving should be uh, intentional and planned and consistent and regular. He says, put it aside so that you can store it up together. Now, obviously, Uh, This is going to look different for us because we have the ability to do things like give online now, but even though it might work out a little bit differently for us, the principle is still the same. Giving should be intentional and planned and regular and consistent. Like, make a plan as to how you're going to do this. I'd encourage you to make it a non-negotiable. Either it's the first thing that comes out of your paycheck or you set it up so that you've got it where it just automatically withdraws every month. I can tell you for me, Uh, If I didn't have it set up as an automatic withdrawal where it just came out every month uh, and I had to make the conscious choice every week or every month to bring a check and to to give that, I I can just tell you my own heart, I'd come up with all sorts of excuses as to why we really don't need to give that much this month. And we had all these unforeseen expenses and God understands that, so he understands we don't really need to give this month. And of course, we'll pick it back up next month, I'd have all these excuses and I'd never actually get around to actually giving generously and sacrificially, so I have to take that out of my hand. But, but for others of you, you need to get in the discipline of bringing it here on Sundays and either dropping the cash or writing the check and getting in that discipline of watching it leave your hands so that you can practice generous and sacrificial giving. Whatever it is for you, Giving should be planned and intentional and regular. And so that means if you're married, you need to sit down and have this conversation with your spouse. If you're single, you need to sit down and plan this out. Make a plan as to how your giving is going to reach the level of being generous and sacrificial. And I'd encourage you, make a plan as to how that giving can grow every year. How you can take another step of trusting Jesus with 
your money and stewarding the money that He has given you? Like, what sort of things can be cut from the budget to free up more for generosity? What sort of spending habits could we change that we, we buy things that, yeah, they're nice to have, but we don't really need those, that, that we could stop doing to give more room to be generous? And, and then notice in verses 3 and 4 another principle here. Paul says he practices accountability and transparency with their money. Uh, he says, whoever you appoint from the church at Corinth to take the money and the resources to Jerusalem, I'll write a letter of accreditation that will go with them, uh, accrediting them when they get to the church at Jerusalem. And if you want me to go with them, I'll accompany them on that journey to Jerusalem. But he does not say, hey, I'm going to come, just give me all the money, and I'll make sure it gets into the right hand. Now, I can't say that what I'm about to say here is a biblical command, so I don't want to bind your conscience, but, but it does seem to me to be the implication of Paul's teaching here, and, and on top of that, I think it's just wisdom. Financial accountability and transparency as a church is so important because the implication of Paul's teaching here to me seems to be uh, that the bulk of your giving should go to the local church. The reason why is that the local church is God's plan A to reach the world. The local church, the church is who Jesus died for. You see, Paul does not start another ministry or a 501c3 to make sure that this collection gets to Jerusalem. He does it through the churches. So the bulk of your giving should go to the local church. And again, I know how self-serving that sounds, but I'll tell you at least... I'm trying to put my money where my mouth is and not tell you to do something that I'm not doing myself. I, like, I don't say, for example, well, the church doesn't need my money because they already get my time, and that's basically like the same thing. No, Braylon and I strive to give generously and sacrificially, and all of our planned giving goes to Veritas because I believe this. Like, I believe the local church is God's plan A to reach the world, that the church is who Jesus died for, and that the local church is going to do a whole lot better job of making sure my money goes to advance the gospel and build up the church and meet practical needs than I will. And as a church, we strive to practice accountability and transparency. As staff members, we do not get to set our salaries. And as a partner, you have access to our budget and our financials whenever you want them. At any time, all you have to do is ask for them. And so we're, we're called to practice this sort of giving that's generous and sacrificial, that's fueled by grace. Next, Paul tells us we're called to practice living that's fueled by grace as well, because Paul moves in verse 5 to start to talk about his travel plans, and notice how he balances both his plans that he's made and the sovereignty of God and the will of God. Uh, he does not say, hey, I really want to come to you, but I'm going to wait until God tells me to come to you. He says, no, here's my plan. I'm going to go to Macedonia and strengthen the churches there, and then I want to spend some time with you. I might even stay the whole winter with you because I don't want this to just be a drop-in visit. And then again, notice the phrase he uses in verse 7, if the Lord permit. So again, he's balancing here. He's not saying, I'm going to sit on my hands and wait for an audible voice from heaven to tell me what to do next. But he also, he, he makes real plans and decisions, but he also doesn't set his plans in stone in a way that God could never redirect them. This seems to be what's going on in verses 8 and 9 when he says, but I'm going to stay in Ephesus until Pentecost because a wide door of effective work has opened for me and there are many adversaries. Now, that's not how most of us interpret an open door from God, is it? 
Most of us interpret an open door like the first part of verse 9. Uh, effective work is happening. People are coming to faith in Jesus. Everything in my life is going awesome. Circumstances are great. But that's not how Paul interprets an open door, is it? He includes opposition and hardship and difficulty in his view of an open door from God. And this is helpful for us because, look, by and large, we just don't believe this. We don't think that difficulty and hardship can be the will of God for our lives. We think if we face opposition and difficulty and hardship, that means God closed the door. God's not in it. Or we made a wrong turn. We made a wrong decision. But that's not true. Anything worth doing is going to be difficult. Anything worth doing for Jesus, you're probably going to face opposition for that. So don't let opposition and hardship and difficulty keep you from making a decision and doing what you know God has called you to do in a situation. Be like Paul. Say, hey, here's my plans, but God opened up this effective door, so I'm going to stay and see this out, even though there are many adversaries. Because when the Bible talks about our decision-making and how we're supposed to plan and make decisions and the will of God, the Bible does not talk about God's specific will for our lives. What I mean is too often we treat the Bible like a magic eight ball where if we can just shake it open to the right page, it'll give us all the answers and tell us who we should marry, where we should go to college, if we should go to college, what option we should apply for on PCS next. And the Bible just does not work that way. God is much more concerned with your character than he is a decision you make in an area where there isn't a clear command. You know why? Because if you're a wise person, what are you more likely to do? make wise decisions. And God doesn't want us to be children forever. He wants us to grow up into maturity and not be like kids who always have to be told exactly what to do in every situation. The Bible functions to build us up in wisdom and character and godliness and make us love Jesus and look more like Jesus and make us wise people so that increasingly we will make wise decisions. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul talks about this. He says, this is the will of God for your life, your sanctification, that you be holy, that you grow to look more like Jesus. So do you want to know God's specific will for your life? That's God's specific will for your life, that you would be holy, that you would grow in your pursuit of Jesus. You would love him more and you would look more like him. And so do that. Seek to grow in holiness And then in areas where there isn't a clear command from God, we're just freed up to make plans and make decisions as we seek counsel and we use wisdom and trust that that one decision we make is not going to throw off God's entire plan for our lives, that God's just a little bit bigger and a little bit more sovereign than that. And, And a decision that gets made for us because of where we might be in the military, that doesn't throw off God's plan for our life either. This is how you live in light of God's grace. Jesus has freed me up to go here or to go there. And so what's going to best help me serve him? Where are are me and my family best going to flourish in Jesus? Where does it look like an effective, uh, a door for effective work might be open to me? Where is a healthy church that I can plug my life into and begin to serve and give my life to? And the gospel frees us from this paralysis of analysis, and it just frees us up to make plans and decisions as we look at the options as best as we can see and say, where am I going to be most faithful and effective for Jesus? Well, it seems like it'll be this. Okay, we'll try that, and and sometimes God opens that door, and other times He redirects you and moves you to somewhere else. 
Paul applies this to, to Timothy and Apollos, and then look at what he commands us again uh, in verses 13 and 14. It says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. So he gives us these commands on what we're to do as we wait for Jesus to return, and the first is that we should be watchful. We should not act like we're in peacetime, because we're not. While we wait for Jesus to return, as we walk in this life, we're going to face difficulty and opposition and hardship and attacks from the enemy, and so we shouldn't hang up the cleats and act like the game is over. And then second, he says we're to stand firm in the faith. Notice that he did not say stand firm in your faith. He said stand firm in the faith. Uh, that means that we stand firm in the gospel and historic Christian doctrine. Jude talks about the faith that was delivered once and for all to the saints, and that's what we're called to stand firm in. So we don't move the goalpost on central, closed-handed Christian doctrines. We don't say, well, the resurrection of Jesus, I mean, if you want it to be a metaphor, I don't see anything that would prevent it from being a metaphor, just as long as you love people. Just try hard to do that. What the Bible teaches about gender and sexuality, well, I mean, who's to really say what the Bible teaches about gender and sexuality with any sort of of certainty. So whatever you want to do, that's okay. No, we stand firm in the truth of God's Word. We don't move away from it. Third, he says that we're to act like men. Some of your translations, if you have a different one, might say, be courageous. Now, remember, this is a letter to the church, not just to men. So Paul's calling both uh, the men and women in the Corinthian church to act like men here. And there's really two ways I think you could take this. Uh, one way, Paul could be saying uh, act like adults, don't act like children, grow up into maturity, or he could be drawing on what was looked at as a masculine virtue, courage, uh, and telling the Corinthian church to be courageous, and I think it's that second one. Paul is telling us, both men and women, to be courageous. I thought Nelson Mandela had a pretty good definition of courage. He says, courage is not the absence of fear, but the triumph over it. The brave man is not he who does not feel afraid, but he who conquers that fear. And so to be courageous is to risk yourself for noble causes. It's to put yourself on the line so that good may come about. It's to do the right thing even when you're afraid. And look, I know many of you already do this. Many of you do this in your workplace or on behalf of your kids. You're willing to risk yourself and put yourself in inconvenient situations and do things that you feel are right even when you're afraid. And look, I'm not saying that's bad. Most of the time, that's really good. What I'll just ask is, do you ever display that same sort of courage on behalf of the gospel? Do you ever display that same sort of courage to share the gospel with a stranger or with a neighbor even when you're afraid, because their salvation matters more than your own comfort. Students, are you ever willing to risk your reputation uh, at school to, to be faithful to Jesus, even when it means you're going to be the odd one out? So Paul tells us to be courageous, but he also tells us to be strong. Uh, strength's not a virtue that's encouraged in our society today, because everything in our society encourages you to focus on yourself and do what makes you feel good, what makes you feel affirmed, what makes you feel comfortable. Everything uh, encourages this obsession with yourself, but the goal of Christianity is to get you less focused on yourself and less obsessed with yourself so that you can get your eyes on Jesus. Living for yourself is a sad, small life 
And Jesus is trying to set you free from that. To be strong means you're willing to inconvenience yourself for the good of others. That you're willing to uh, face opposition and hardship and difficulty for the sake of Jesus and for the good of others. That you don't wilt in the sun anytime things get a little bit hot and get a little bit difficult. Then he ends by saying, let all that you do be done in love. Remember 1 Corinthians 13, if we do all these things, if we have faith that moves mountains, if we give up our body to be burned, if we do all of these things but we don't have love, we've accomplished nothing. And so courage and toughness and strength are incredibly important, but if they're not tempered by love, they're wasted. And this is, this is how we live, fueled by God's grace, in how we make our plans and decisions, and how we love and serve one another, and that's what Paul's going to expand on in this final section of the chapter. He's going to tell us what it looks like to practice serving fueled by grace. Look again at verse 15 with me. He says, Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they've made up for your absence for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. So Paul tells us to show honor and recognition to some people in the church. And who are they? Well, verse 15 says they're those who have devoted themselves to serving the saints. And in verse 16, he says that the Corinthian church is to be subject to them, to submit to them, to look to them as leaders and submit to them as leaders. But, but I want you to notice, did Paul say anything about those three holding a formal office in the church? What I mean by that is, did he say anything about them being elders or deacons? No, he didn't. But he says the Corinthians are to be subject to them, to submit to them and look to them for leadership. Now, what this means is that leadership and authority and influence in the church is ultimately gained through serving, not through being given a position or a title. Look, I know many of you in the military have had experience with this, and you know that just giving somebody a title, if people don't respect that person, that title doesn't really mean anything. If people don't respect you, they're only going to follow you as far as they're forced to if you're given a title. I want to give credit where credit is due. I'm about to borrow and paraphrase quite a bit from an article from Sam Amati that I found really helpful. But, but so often our problem is we think of the church in terms of an institution with programs and platforms. And so we think, if I have this gift, if I want to be a leader, then, then I need a platform and a title and a position to use it. So I need to be teaching the class, or I need to be uh, recognized as a team leader. Too often we think of the church as what we're doing here on Sundays right now is you come to church and we up here up front serve you up a really nice production and you consume that product and then you go home. Now if that's all that church is, it, obviously if you're not up here serving out the product, man, then you don't matter as much and you don't get to use your gifts and you're really not obligated to use your gifts in any sort of fashion. Look, that's not the church. That's not what we're doing here this morning. This is a family who gathers together to worship Jesus and all build one another up. And so if we will instead see the church for what it is, a family instead of a show with programs and platforms, 
Then the conversation moves into what needs to need to be met. How can I serve to help the family? How can I use my gifts in a way that would build others up? And if you want leadership and influence in the church, and then devote yourself to the service of the saints. And even if you don't want that, this is the call on your life when you became a follower of Jesus to devote yourself to the service of the saints, to ask yourself the question, this is my family, so what needs need to be met? How can I serve? How can I help so that this family would grow into all that Jesus has for it to be? So for example, come here on Sunday mornings instead of thinking, man, what can I get out of it this morning? Think, who needs to be encouraged this morning? Who can I talk to and give a word of encouragement and encourage them in the gospel? Who needs to be prayed for? Who can I pray for and check in with so that they might be helped? And who, uh, who needs to be helped in this way? Who can I invite to lunch today? Who can I invite over for dinner one night this week? Who can I practically welcome in a way that Jesus has welcomed me? And who can I practically serve? If you're talking to somebody and you realize, hey, they've, they've got some financial troubles, they need some help, or you're talking to a young married couple and they need help setting a budget and you've got some financial savvy, why not offer to help them do that? You realize that's using your gift of administration to build up the church. And why not come in here and think, there are some people that need help following Jesus how can I invite them into the rhythms of my life so I can help encourage them how to follow Jesus and teach them how to follow Jesus? If you think you have the gift of teaching, do you think that that gift, uh, that you're too good to use that gift over in Veritas Kids? If you think you have the gift of teaching, do you think that gift would be wasted if it's being used over there in Veritas Kids uh, instead of up here on a platform like this? And if and if you hear all of that and you're like, well, I really don't know where the needs in this church are. I don't know who needs help. I really only kind of know people in my community group, and even then I don't really know them that well. And then I encourage you, the first step is to actually get to know people here, to have a conversation with them and see where those needs are and who you can encourage. Because again, church, what we're doing right now, this is not a product that we all consume together. This is a life that we share in as we seek to build one another up in Jesus. This is what Jesus has called us to do. If you want to be obedient to the calling God has placed on your life, and if you want authority and leadership and recognition in the church, and devote yourself to the service of the saint. That's the people who recognition should be given to in the church. Paul goes on in verses 19 and 20 and talks about how other churches are sending the Corinthians greetings, and he says they should greet one another with a holy kiss. Uh, now, we're, we're not going to do that today. That was a cultural way that that played out. You know, there are still some other cultures around the world today that greet each other like this, but that's not how we do it in our culture unless you want to go to jail. Um, but even with that, the, the principle underneath it still holds true, which is that we're supposed to have a real affection for one another. Because Jesus has really made us into brothers and sisters here in the church. And so I'll just ask you, as you look around the room this morning, and I want you to actually do that. Like, look around the room this morning. As you look around the room this morning, do you have, do you feel a real affection for your brothers and sisters here in Jesus that you have covenanted with to say, I can't follow Jesus without you. You can't follow Jesus without me. Uh, if we don't do, we're in this together for better or for worse. We're not getting to heaven without each other's help. We're not making it to the end without 
each other's help, do you feel that sort of affection for the brothers and sisters you've covenanted to live together as a family with here? And if you don't, I would just ask you to do some, heart in your, do some work in your heart and, and ask the question, why? What, what's keeping you from that? Because again, what we're doing here, this is not a product that we all consume together and then go home. This is a life that we share in together as a family as each of us is seeking to build one another up and use our gifts to serve so that this body might grow into maturity and all that Jesus has for it to be. Paul closes out the letter by, uh, by talking about how he has, he's greeting them with his own hand. And so this is Paul's practice. He would have somebody, he would dictate the letter to somebody else who would write it down. And then at the end of his letters, he would sign it uh, with a greeting from his own hand. And after a letter filled with pretty harsh rebuke for the Corinthian church, he wants to reiterate his love for them in verse 24. And then look again at what he says in verse 22. He says, if anyone has no love for the Lord... Let him be accursed. It doesn't sound like a really nice way to end a letter, does it? But it does help put into perspective that, that we're really not just kind of giving out good vibes and positive motivations here on Sundays. We're talking about issues of life and death. Like if you don't trust in and follow Jesus and have a love for the Lord, you're going to die and go to hell. If your friends and your family members and your neighbors don't love and trust and follow Jesus, they're going to die and go to hell. Now, I know that's not a fun truth, but that is a real truth, and it does give urgency to the need to get the gospel to our friends, to our family members, and to our neighbors, and to the nation. And that's how Paul ends this letter, with the gospel. It says, our Lord Jesus, come, return, come back again like you promised to do. We wait for Jesus to return, and while we wait, we have the promise of verse 23, the grace of Jesus is with us. Paul began this letter to a messed up church with grace, that even though they were sinners who constantly turned away from God and constantly got it wrong and constantly uh, had so much areas of sin in their life, he said, God is faithful and God will keep you to the end so that you would be guiltless, blameless in the day when Jesus returns. And now he's ending his letter the same way that he began with God's grace. Because Jesus lived in our place and died for our sins and rose from the dead, we now live in the reality of God's grace. That, that God's favor is towards us and is not going to turn away from us. That, that we have His deep love over our lives. That because of the work of Jesus, we are His daughters and His son. Like This is the air you just get to breathe now. This is the water that you swim in as a follower of of Jesus. And so I encourage you, make this the defining reality of your life. God's grace is with you on good days when you feel like you got it right, on bad days when you feel like you got it wrong. God's grace is with you. He doesn't change his mind about you. He does not turn away from you. So make his grace and what he's done for you the defining reality of your life. The more you do that, the more you're going to live a life that, that's characterized by giving fueled by grace. You're going to live fueled by grace. You're going to serve fueled by grace. And the more you'll be able to say with Paul, our Lord Jesus, come. Come back and finish the work that you started. Let me pray for us that that would be the case. Father, thank you for this letter. 
thank you that you are not silent. You've spoken to us. You haven't left us in the dark as to what your will is for our life. How we can be reconciled to you. How we can live for you. Thank you that you speak. So God, I, I do pray that, that because you've spoken, would we listen? Would you give us ears to hear and hearts to receive this message? Would you help us to be a church characterized by serving one another with our gifts, building one another up, inconveniencing ourselves for the good of others? How would you help us to be a people who are generous and open-handed with our money, who trust you instead of our things in a culture that is encouraging us to get more and build bigger barns and get more safety and security for ourselves and add more to our bank accounts, would you help us to be countercultural and to trust you with our resources and to know that it's all yours anyway and that you've just given it to us to steward. Help us to do that. How would you help us as we leave this letter and move on to different aspects and parts of your word? Would you help us to be a church characterized by this sort of grace? I pray that you would. In your name, amen.